Well, here on the Marathon of History podcast, we like to be very original, and I doubt anybody else used the song uh, Zombie by the Cranberries for a uh, Halloween podcast, so there you go. And today on the podcast... They put on the hood and dropped him through the floor, and that was the end of Cook Teats. Hey, history fans, Matt Johnson here from the Marathon of History podcast. And many of you uh, might not know this, but uh, we've actually been voted the best history podcast in the universe by a very select group of voters. Um, I'm not going to reveal who the voters are, but we were we were voted the best history podcast in the universe. So, uh, yeah, that's a, a pretty good award. And uh, we were also voted the best history podcast, uh, the south end of Durham, Ontario. So, um, you know, the awards just keep coming and uh, we're really proud of that. And today's show is really cool, actually. Uh, one of my favorite guests and one of my favorite people to work with, uh, I've got to work with her a fair bit now over the last year, is Stephanie McMullen from Grey Roots Museum and Archives in Owen Sound. And Stephanie is really great at her job. She is a fantastic historian, uh, very good presenter, and uh, all around just great to work with. And, you know, it's, it's cool um, to look at some of the stories this time of year that come out in history. Of course, you know, we're near Halloween. And... Some of the history stories that come out are just a little bit different than what we usually look at. And of course, you know, the scary, the macabre, these things, they're all part of life too, and it's all part of history. So um, we're going to have a look today at a murder case from Grey Bruce um, that took place in 1884. And this is actually a murder case where a man was hanged and hanged, hung. Anyways, he died. Uh, he was punished and he was wrongfully accused, um, very badly wrongfully accused. And it wasn't until I think about 40 years later when it came out that he was uh, wrongfully put to death for this crime. So uh, Stephanie's going to tell us a little more about this story. And I think you'll probably find, uh, just as I did, that, uh, you know, it's it's a weird story. It's sort of a Halloween-y story. But uh, at the end of the day, it's also um, a very tragic story that happened to a very real person. So here's Stephanie McMullen from Great Roots Museum and Archives with the tragic tale of Cook Teats. Cool. So today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some weird stuff or scary stuff, I guess, or, or somewhere in between there, I guess, some of those falls. But uh, as we approach Halloween and uh, what, what kind of memories of Halloween do you have from being a kid? Like, I remember like freezing sometimes in my costume. <laughs> I remember being really cold and I'm old enough to remember those horrible Halloween costumes went, that I had <laughs> with like the, the over suit that was made of some wickedly flammable material <laughs> and the plastic mask that you'd put over your face and suffocate. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I those do remember those masks. Days. Yeah. Those like oh. hard plastic hard plastic and then you get all the condensation inside from breathing yeah oh man but it was all worthwhile when you got home and dumped your huge bag of candy out well that's it that's it i mean there's a little suffering but there's a great reward at the end <laughs> oh man it set us up for life that was good life lessons i'm sure oh yeah <laughs> perseverance yeah exactly okay so i didn't uh, i didn't prep you for this question but uh Beyond uh, Cook Teats that we'll talk about, what's your uh, what's your favorite scary story from the local area? I it's hard to pick one because there's some pretty neat ones, but 
I would probably have to say the one about Amand Poudrier when he's trying to, he mummifies his family and then he tries to mummify himself. That's just so weird and strange (laughs) that it, it just tickles my fascination. And I mean, we'll never know exactly what was going through his mind at the time, but it's definitely something that I always think about it and then go, what, what, why? (laughs) Why? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Why? How? Yeah. That was, uh, I know when you sent me that for the, uh, the magazine, I was like, wow, that's, that's something there, but yeah. And I wonder about the poor cops who wandered in and and actually happened upon the whole scene. That would be pretty scarring. Yeah, that would be, yeah, that would definitely be something. So, yeah. So, uh, let's talk about, uh, a scary story or a, I guess a tragic story even from, uh, from Gray Bruce that uh, will be in the upcoming issue of Marathon of History magazine. And that's uh, surrounding a fellow named Cook Teats. So uh, give us a bit of background on this, uh, Stephanie. You're right. It is an absolute tragedy. And I do feel that he was a wronged man. Um, Cook Teats was the first person executed in Gray County. And, uh, <sighs> The story is just very sad and confusing. Cook and his family were one of the early settlers in Artemisia Township. They moved up from New York State, um, settled, uh, developed a prosperous farm, and then they also started into furniture making. Cook was blind. He'd been blinded at the age of 12 in one eye when a snowball full of stones hit him in the eye and it destroyed his eyesight. And then over time, uh, he, by his late teens, he had gone blind in the other eye as well through a series of infections. And people then were different than people are now when it comes to disabilities and tolerance. In fact, because of his disability, Cook was subject to taunts and quote-unquote practical jokes. Kids would throw rocks at him. People would trip him in the street just so they could laugh when he fell. And as a result, Cook became very short-tempered, and his first reaction in most situations was anger. Right. Defensive anger, but he was known to have a short fuse. Well, understandable if he's constantly being, oh, you know, absolutely. pushed around. And yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. And so Cook continued to live with his mother as an adult. Uh, and he actually did finally get married in 1880 to a woman who was several years his junior. And Things went south pretty fast in that marriage, and they soon separated. And they did what many, many people in that era in Gray County and other places in rural Ontario did. Divorce was expensive and very difficult to obtain in Ontario at the time. You needed an act of parliament to be divorced. Oh, wow. So they had what was called a country divorce. And so the two pairs, they would separate. They would go their own way and live their own life independently of one another. And frequently, they would marry other people. And we would consider it, and technically legally, it was bigamy, but um, that was the recourse they had at the time. 
So he separated from his first wife, still living with his mother, and her health had started to decline. So she asked Cook to go and hire a neighbor to do the housekeeping for them. So he went to visit the Leopard family, and uh, they were a very poor Irish family, um, what is often referred to derogatorily as swamp Irish. Um, they lived in a one-room shack in the country. Um, very, very poor. They had 14 kids. Uh, Rosanna was the middle daughter, and uh, she was very pretty. And she learned how to cash in on her attractiveness. She also had a very independent streak. Which, in an era when women are supposed to be modest and demurring, does not win her right. a lot of fans. But Cook hires her, and so she comes up to the Teats family home to do housekeeping for them. Well, by June of that year, they announced Cook and Rosanna, who was all of 25, <clears throat> excuse me, well, Cook was well into his 50s at this point. That they're going to get married. Hmm. Now, over the course of the summer, they decide that they should have a life insurance policy. Cook is too old and his health is too uncertain for it to be in his name. But Rosanna's only 25. She's young. She's healthy. Um, she also has two daughters already that she has had... Um, one for certain was out of wedlock. The other one was perhaps out of wedlock. She insisted that she was retired. She had married the child's father. There was no documentary evidence to support it. And soon after the child was born, Rosanna and her erstwhile husband disappeared. And when Rosanna came back, nobody could find any trace of okay. this husband. So, he, she thought, okay, well, we can get this insurance policy, and if something happens to me, my daughters will be okay. Yeah. Hook is named as the beneficiary. Apparently, Rosanna's father thought it was a really smart idea to do this. The insurance policy was for $4,000. Okay. And that's quite a fortune in 1883. The insurance policy takes effect October 4th. Um, there's no internet. It takes time for all that paperwork to go through the proper channels. And so they get married in September and they get married in Toronto. And this is what happens a lot during this time when there's the country divorce. When you get married, you don't get married in your home community because everybody knows you were already right, married. Right, right. <laughs> so you go to a minister in another community who has no idea. And when you say you're single, Okay. No problem. Yeah. So, exactly. So they're married. They go on a honeymoon to visit some of his relatives in Michigan. They come home and then they each live in their parents' house, but they visit frequently. Well, around the end of October, by this point, Rosanna is not feeling very well. She's having trouble keeping food down. She has a poor appetite things that a lot of women have when they're pregnant. Right. And indeed, Rosanna was pregnant again. 
on this particular day, Cook had gone down to Rosanna's family and spent the day down there. Then at the end of the day, after tea, about four o'clock, she walked him halfway back to his mother's house and then she returned home. She didn't want any supper and they went to bed very, very early. Around eight o'clock, Rosanna woke up and said she was hungry. The rest of the family had gone somewhere else, but so it was just her mother, her sister, one of her sisters, one of her sisters-in-law and the children who were home at this time. So Rosanna's mother gets her a couple slices of bread and butter and some milk. She eats that. Everybody goes back to sleep. Around midnight or so, there's a loud noise at the door. And so Rosanna wakes up and is nervous. All the women, of course, are nervous about what's going on. So her mother says, just put the knife in the door. So she puts the knife in to secure the latch. Everybody goes back to sleep. Suddenly at six o'clock in the morning, Rosanna wakes up and screams, dear mother. And she starts having a violent seizure. Her muscles all cramp up, her jaw locks shut. Um, her eyes are bulging and unfocused. And so her mother goes over and starts slapping her to come out of this. <laughs> this doesn't work, of course. No. Um, <laughs> but eventually the seizure, seizure subsides and she starts seeming more normal. Then another seizure strikes. And so she tries to throw water on her to get her to stop. That doesn't work. She starts coming out of it again. And then she goes into her third seizure by 630 in the morning. And she doesn't come out of that one. She dies in absolute agony. Well, when a healthy young person dies very suddenly and strangely like that, there has to be an autopsy and an inquiry. Rosanna's family wanted her buried right away. They didn't want to do the autopsy. They did not want to do any kind of inquest. Keep that in your back pocket. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so nevertheless, an autopsy is performed by Dr. Thomas Spruill. He ultimately, he's the member of parliament for Gray East. Um, he eventually rises to become the Speaker of the House of Commons. And then after he retires from Parliament, he becomes um, the grand leader of the International uh, Orange Order. Okay. So he's a very prominent, important man in the community. In the autopsy, he discovers that Rosanna was indeed pregnant and that she had traces of strychnine in her stomach. They have a an inquest, and very quickly it's obvious that they're looking to pin this on Cook. Right. The star witness is Rosanna's mother, and she says that she had always objected to the relationship with Cook, that she thought it was horribly inappropriate that they were together. Um, she certainly wasn't happy about the pregnancy because... Rosanna had already dumped two children on her, and right. so she would certainly expect that she was going to do it again. Um, but 
she was still her daughter and she would not harm her. However, Cook had everything to gain because he had this $4,000 life insurance policy. Right, on her. right. So the inquest decides that, yes, uh, she clearly was murdered and that Cook Teats is the prime culprit. The trial, the case goes to trial and he is found guilty. Again, her mother is the star witness. Her sister Bridget was also called to testify, but instead of looking at uh, the jury or looking at the lawyers who were asking questions, she kept looking at her mother to make sure. Right. Nevertheless, hmm. the jury came back very quickly and convicted him of murder and sentenced him to be hanged. Immediately, there's a huge uproar. There's editorials going back and forth in all the papers in Grey Bruce. Um, it catches national attention because the thing is, strychnine is a very effective poison. And Cook did have some to deal with rats and things in the garden. But strychnine is also relatively fast. Um, typically, it will kill within three hours of administration. Okay. It had been more than 14 hours since the last time Cook saw her. Okay. And how a blind man could be sure to administer enough poison to kill her, but not so much that it would cause a funny taste that would make her suspicious right? and not administer anything to his food. I mean, he had a seeing eye dog, but dog doesn't have opposable thumbs. <laughs> no, no. So, <laughs> That's pretty strict um, parameters to work in for poison for a, for a blind fellow. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Um, and, and so it didn't really seem to add up. So even though the jury came back with a guilty plea, they recommended clemency. Right. Well, the judge was not in support of that, and he sentenced him to hang. There ends up being two petitions that go to the executive council of uh, parliament, what we now call the cabinet, and asking please, for clemency. Now, this is the fall of 1884. Things are stirring up out west. And, right. of course, Cabinet's very concerned about that. They're not really concerned about some guy in Gray County. So they said that the act of law should take place. So Cook was taken out on the morning of December 5th, 1884, to the exercise yard in the old Owen Sound Jail. The gallows had been constructed in the southeast corner. Now, uh, public executions uh, did not happen anymore at that time, but that doesn't mean people weren't curious. Right. And so, if at that time the hill behind what became Strathcona School didn't have all the trees on it that it has today. So you could have a nice view into that courtyard in the jail. So when they constructed the gallows, they also constructed a screen along the top of <laughs> the jail wall so that right. people couldn't peek in. And so Cook was led out. He was very sick. His hair and his beard had turned white. His one eye was 
puffed up and running with mucus and pus. He was ill. He'd been right. in jail for the entire time between the time that he had been arrested and the year that it took for it to go to trial. He again proclaimed his innocence and they put on the hood and dropped him through the floor. And that was the end of Cook Teats. Right. His family gathered his remains and had him buried in Potter's Field at Greenwood Cemetery. So that is his final resting place. He has no stone marker like the 1,200 other people who are in Potter's Field. But the story, interestingly, doesn't end there. Um, the Leopard family seem to be cursed. There are other members of the family who were involved in various homicides in the 1890s. But in particular, Mrs. Leopard went insane. So by the 1890s, she is becoming increasingly violent and volatile. And so she's arrested for burning down a neighbor's barn and then threatening to kill people. So she's transported to Owen Sound Jail. And from there, she's transported to the Owen Sound, in, or the Owen Sound, the Toronto Insane Asylum. Okay. That's where she lives for the rest of her life. And she died finally in 1917. But in 1908, interestingly, there was an anonymous confession published in the Toronto Evening Telegram that said that the wrong person was executed for Rosanna's murder um, and that this had been weighing on Anonymous all these years. But really, um, she was the one who killed her daughter. And so Gray County's first executed man did indeed go to his death, an innocent man. Wow. Yeah. That is a... That is, has the parts of a fiction movie. There's so much craziness in that. Like, truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> it's it's true. There actually is a book, interestingly enough, that it has been written. It is definitely um, a novel version of the story, but it has yeah. some good research in it as well that is that very story. Yeah. Wow. That's uh, that's incredible. and. I'm surprised as you were telling the story there, I'm surprised about the judge, uh, like whether that be a localist judge, um, you know, I understand cabinet had other things going on, but the judge itself, I'm surprised he didn't take those calls for clemency more serious. He was known very much as a hardliner. Um, it right. was, his name was um, John Thomas uh, Armour. He was from Coburg. And so these criminal courts, they happened quarterly or depending on the weather and other extraneous circumstances, right. um, it would take a while. So he wasn't local. He was a hardliner. He came in and, and he was very much of the opinion that if you've been convicted of murder, there is nothing that there is no such thing as an extenuating circumstance in that right. case. And he actually eventually was raised to the Supreme court of Canada. Okay. So he served on that on, Till his death. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So that is a, I mean, I hate to say it, very interesting story. Um, tragic. Yeah. Absolutely tragic. Um, but yeah, that's just uh, one of many uh, Grey Bruce weird 
tragic, scary stories. So, well, thank you for uh, sharing that with us. Oh, you're welcome. It is um, it. What interests me about these kinds of stories really is that they are real. That so often it's easy as a historian to focus on the happy stories right. or successes. But life's not like that in the past right. any more than it is in the present. And people who did have a hard time in life, their stories should still be heard and remembered too. Yeah, absolutely. It is part of the bigger story. And uh, like you say, life is good and bad and need to talk about both. Well, there you have it. The incredible story of the wrongful accusation and execution of Cook Teats. And it's just incredible that the truth sort of came out um, so long after and it, it, to me what blew me away with the story was how everything was just so rushed through it's like uh, yep he's guilty let's uh, let's do it let's just you know let's just hang him and get it out of the way and move on so um, not a lot of uh, appeal process in there at all so anyways that is all for today's show and of course uh, you can read more stories from Grey Bruce Halloweeny type Grey Bruce stories in the current issue of Marathon of History magazine which can be read at marathonofhistory.ca for free or you can buy physical copies online and I will mail them to you or you can find them at any number of local museums in the Great Bruce area in the gift shop and if the museum doesn't have them uh, make sure you ask because I will get the museum some so they are available everywhere and I appreciate everybody for listening and I appreciate everybody who reads the magazine and I wish you all a very scary Halloween and we'll talk again in a couple weeks